When the smoky lights dim and reality kicks in. Coming, both are incoming. No, no, coming now. Oh, where am I? You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. Fire day. Thanks. You know, it's all part of my job on the wash up rescue team. Yeah. Building wow. fires on the beach. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, sometimes we need them, you know? If we have a lot of people that are washing up at the yeah. same time, hmm. everyone is wet. Hypothermia can set in. Oh, right. Hypothermia. Hypo meaning low and thermia mm -hmm. meaning thermostat. <laughs> meaning temperature. I mean, I, that's what I meant. I love words. I start every day reading the dictionary. What? You do not. I do. You do not. I do. Words okay. interest me. Oh, we okay. need words. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, we don't have the tools. You know, the vocabulary oh, to. Uh, what to am what? I trying to say? I, I've to, uh, lost my to track. Speak, to talk. Yeah, to, 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 yeah. to know to, a thing. Uh, to, 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 to convey. To convey. Okay, to convey. What we all mean right. or how we feel. Okay. To, to communicate, to bond. Okay. Language is all we have, and I wish I could sure. borrow from every language in the world. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. I'm captivated yeah. by non-English words for feelings, especially the ones that are untranslatable in our language. Yeah. Hmm. There's a word in Brazilian Portuguese that refers to the emotions summoned when you run your fingers through someone's hair. Oh. Oh. We don't have a word like that in English. Yeah, we do. It's called a comb. Awesome. You get what I mean. You get I what get I it, mean. I get it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But you know, we don't need words to express feelings anymore. Nancy, hello, we have emojis. Oh, oh yeah. don't get me started. Don't we? My yeah, son yeah, calls yeah, emojis yeah, yeah. the 21st century hieroglyphics. Oh, yeah, he's but it's such wrong. an easy way out, yeah. isn't it's it? True. Yep, yep, the right, happy yep. face means you're happy, yeah. right? The sad face means you're sad. Mm -hmm. The skateboarder means you're skateboarding, but you're not. You're texting. Then oh. there's the turkey leg emoji. The yeah. turkey leg yeah, emoji. Yeah. Okay. What, what is that one supposed to? Be? Is that supposed to be like Thanksgiving? You guys, I'm pretty sure it just means food. That's it. Like really big, huge food. Well, I don't know. What but how like. do any of these communicate feelings? Yeah. I love to write letters, but I never get any response from my kids. Well. So instead, when I want to check in with my daughter, I text a long string of turkey legs. No words, just turkey legs. And after a bit, she texts me back a longer string of turkey legs. So I know all is well. Oh, it's I think. That's great. Every now and then, I throw in a non-turkey leg emoji to see if she's paying attention. I imagine her thinking, Gosh, I wonder why mother attached a dump truck emoji to her text about my new haircut. I wonder how she's feeling. Maybe I should call her. Yeah. And what did you mean to say with a dump truck emoji, Nancy? I meant to say, talk to me, darling. Oh, okay. So the okay. actual yeah. word, oh. emoji. Yes, Miss Wordsmith. It's Japanese, right. right, Nancy? But, yes. but many think it has roots in the word emotion. Mm -hmm. But it actually comes from the Japanese words for picture plus letter or character. Oh, okay. The word oh. has no link to emotion. Oh. But the irony is we use emojis to express emotion. So, okay, okay. So I wish we could use emojis to make, like, big statements. Mm -hmm. Like, is there an emoji for, I'm sorry, are you mansplaining me right now? <laughs> there is that one with the cop right. blowing a whistle, like, halt. That yeah, I think that's right? more about traffic. Oh. I think it's all about traffic. Or how about an emoji what... for a woman president for once in our freaking yes. life? That one. You know what that would be? That would be a woman yeah. standing tall and proud in the Oval Office. But Sue, that could be the First Lady. Okay, okay, okay. It's a woman wearing a sash that says Ms. POTUS. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. <laughs> or what about what? one for let's finally pass the ERA amendment, people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 
Yeah. Okay. That would be a screaming face with big ERA buttons as eyes. That'd be good. Or, or how about one for no, a bunch of old white guys cannot tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. Yeah, yes. right, right. That's, a, that's a bunch of old white guys with bad comb overs and a big red line through it. That'd be good. I'd that's like what that one is. I do yep, that yep, one yep, yep, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. How about an emoji that says, yes, I'm an older woman mm -hmm. uh -huh. and you can ignore me if you'd like, but I'm very proud of my years on this earth. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Okay, I one for, I'm sorry. Uh, why am I being paid less than him when I've been in this job a lot longer? Yeah, or how yeah. about, no, mm. I won't forgive you. You've hurt me enough. I'm done. Whoa. Whoa, you okay? Jay, oh. are you all right? Yeah, you know, that was in the past, really. Like, I've moved on. Okay, yeah. but, re but really, really? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I was young. I was like 14 and he was like 19. Wow. So gosh. I was like just really naive and I thought everything would work out even if he was dealing with his own problems. Although it is funny because I never knew exactly what it was. I just knew when he succumbed to it. Mm. <laughs> like he got angry that I wasn't talking to him correctly or processing it correctly or correctly. fixing it correctly. Wow, well, yeah. But of course I had faith it would work out, that it would get better and it didn't. Hmm. But you guys, Sorry. the beautiful thing about faith is that it's not something that you just feel. You know, it, it conjures something up in you and it pulls you towards a direction. And I gained faith in myself. I knew that I was stronger than who I was when I was with him. So I left. Good for you, Day. Good yeah. for you, Day. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful day. So, but you're with someone new. Right? I yeah, mean, I am. And he's super sweet. Oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah, Nia Kulushia Kulunju. Okay, what, what, what does that what, mean? What, is, what did you well, say? Well, okay, it basically means like, you are my heart, the air that I breathe. Oh. But yeah. it literally means you are my liver and my breathing tubes. <laughs> That's it romantic. Sounds, it sounds so sweet. <laughs> yeah. I know. And we have other lines like, <laughs> which in Google Translate, it says, the buyer is beautiful as long as you keep the odor on. So odor like <laughs> perfume, like keep the perfume? No, no, no. It really means, hey girl, you're so pretty. I bet when you fart, it smells good. No. <laughs> no, seriously. Seriously? Yeah, they what? just don't this translate well. Oh. Okay, but the best one is, Okay, I'm afraid to ask, but what does that one mean? <laughs> it sounds cute, right? It is cute. It says, what did your parents eat that made you cute? Oh, oh. I know, I know. Well, what, okay, okay, okay. So, what did your parents eat, Day? Because you are super cute. Turkey, like turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Latina, and I am. But what if I told you that I haven't been a Latina all my life? I grew up in Guatemala City until my early 20s. There, I had a long and promising career. Everything was going great. Suddenly, I had this opportunity to come directly to Minnesota to participate in a cultural ambassador program where people from all over the world get together and share their culture. Well, that experience led to a job offer, and later my contract got extended, and that's how I stayed in this beautiful state, and I call it home. But the transition from living in Guatemala to my life here in the US, it wasn't easy 20 years ago. Minnesota was too far north and cold. <laughs> Although people were friendly, I felt very isolated. And somehow, it also felt as if I was the only person that looked different in the entire neighborhood back then in St. Paul. Initially, I thought I knew enough English with what I was taught in school. Since I was in kindergarten, I knew the numbers, days of the week, colors, I am, you are, he is, she is. This is the way I wash my face, I wash my face, I wash my face. <laughs> But once here, I realized that mm -mm, I didn't even know how to ask for directions. So I had to really learn English. 
The good thing was that I was surrounded by only English speakers 24-7, and that helped a lot. People around me knew that I didn't speak much English, so they would talk to me very slow and loud. <laughs> we have a meeting. You know, I think I learned fast, but on the other side, I felt as if I was missing something important. I rarely heard people speaking Spanish around me. I felt disconnected. My life was very different from what it was back home. Most days, I was very lonely. I missed my big family, my 44 cousins, the big family reunions with all of us talking at the same time. <laughs> That's why if I heard people speaking Spanish in a public place, you know, for example, if I was in the bus and I heard people hopping on and saying, este bus nos lleva a la universidad. <gasps> my little antennas went up and then I would run towards them and introduce myself and say, hola, que tal? Ustedes hablan español. Sí, ah, yo también. <laughs> De donde son? You know, as if I had just discovered the cure for coronavirus. <sighs> and they were also very excited. After all, at that time, you hardly run into people speaking Spanish in Minnesota. <laughs> so they would go, oh, yo soy de Peru. Mi amiga es de Colombia. Ah, sí, qué bien, qué bien. Yo, de Guatemala. Oh, sí, ¿y dónde viven? Yo vivo en San Paul. Ah, yo también, qué maravilla. It didn't matter where they were from. It felt as if I had run into my cousin. They were family because, you know, they spoke like me and they looked like me. ¿Y a dónde van? A clases. Ah, yo al correo. Uh, a ver, ¿cuál es tu número de teléfono? Nos podemos juntar un día, hacer algo. And we would even exchange phone numbers. And that's how I made most of my friends at that time. We're in the same boat, you know? We missed our home. We came here alone, and now we have each other, so that we can navigate together our new life. From little things such as reapplying for a visa, opening a bank account, to more serious things like being worried about your friend's family in Chile because of an earthquake, or political unrest in your friend's hometown in Mexico. Once here, our lives get connected. If I had stayed in Guatemala, my circle would have been much smaller. Over there, nobody cares if my great-grandma, an Italian farmer, had planned to emigrate to Argentina, but decided to settle in Guatemala instead because their boat broke. <laughs> also, over there, nobody questions my indigenous ancestry, which we all possess. I never thought I would be any different than I thought I always was. But here, I am a Latina. I remember the first time somebody used the term Latina on me. I wasn't sure if they were referring to me, but then it hit me. I heard in this country, people like me are called Latinos. I never thought one day I would be one until then. Over time, I discovered that it does have some weight. All of a sudden, I got a new name, but not just any name, but an identity which I had to learn to embrace. It was a little confusing. I didn't know if it was just a label or a thing that people need to place you in a certain box to know how they can deal with you. I noticed that it was very common also for Latinos to adopt characteristics that are part of the stereotype because that makes it easier for us to assimilate. For example, my friend from Spain teaches her students the song, I Love Tacos, and decorates her classroom with cactuses and calaveras. Yeah, from Spain, imagine. We're all supposed to be terrific dancers. I also thought, well, if I'm supposed to be Latina, I'll be a damn good one. That's how I learned to dance salsa in Minnesota. Back home in the 90s, we would call salsa everything that sounded tropical. You know, <laughs> if it was a merengue, ah, that's salsa. Bachata, no, that's salsa. <laughs> but here, I got to hear and dance the real salsa from Cuba and Puerto Rico. 
I also learned to eat more spicy food with jalapenos and all the fixings. Because let me tell you, in Guatemala, our food is not spicy at all. I remember going to an audition as an actor to one of the biggest theaters in the Twin Cities and perhaps in the country, and being told that because of my fair skin complexion, I didn't look Latina enough for the part. But over time, I came face to face to the reality that this was something bigger than a label. This authenticity that I thought I had to have was much more than a mere appearance. Little by little, I saw the real stuff. The many times you're passed over a promotion, the many ways you feel misunderstood, the boss who you're convinced doesn't see you the way you are. How in the upper management structure of your company, nobody looks like you. And every day, you realize how difficult it is to move ahead in your career. Not just because you're a woman, but also because people see you in a way that is not the way you see yourself. And that is probably affecting your future. Then you see what happens around you. What happens to friends who are less fortunate to have their papers in order and have to spend their days in hiding, hoping to never get deported? More recently, seeing children who were born in the same place I was born, being treated like animals, raped, separated from their families because of where they are coming from. It seriously hits me now. Who is their voice? It becomes more and more clear that this label that I didn't know I had 20 years ago has become ingrained in the fabric of my journey. And to me now, it's an honor to be called Latina or Latinx, which I don't take as just an any name, it's a call for equality and justice. It's a call to the visibility of the struggles of people from many different places. What if we embrace yet a brand new identity that includes people instead of dividing people? The truth is we all learn from each other. We need each other. I learn that there is something powerful and life-saving when we get close enough to a stranger just to talk, I don't know, about how they're doing, no matter where they're from, and like when I wasn't the boss. Porque siempre van a haber tormentas, y es mejor que estemos juntos para superarlas. Así que sigan adelante, Latinos. A veces hay que abrirse camino, abrirse paso por donde no lo hay. This reminds me of a beautiful poem by Machado that says, way for her, there is no way. Make your way by going farther. Caminante, no hay camino. Se hace camino al andar. Gracias. Sylvia Pontaza. Thank you, Sylvia. So in 2008, uh, we said we were ready for the first woman president. It was time. Then the young black guy entered the race, and it became kind of a tricky, well, whose time is it to be the first? Well, ultimately became time for the first black president, which is terrific. So in 2016, again, we said, we are so totally ready for the first woman president, but not that one. No, no, she's, she's, she's not, she's not, she's not right. She's, she's too fill in the blanks, right? Yes. She won more votes, but anyway. And now it's, uh, and now it's 2020. And we've been saying loudly for months, oh my God, is absolutely the right time for the first woman president. Yes, yes, yes. But not any of these. No, 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 no. They're, they're great. They're, they're great. They're so competent. But 
that, you know, they're just, they're just not right. They're not for this crucial time in our history. So now we, who are Democrats, have two white guys still standing. This one will do this, oh, but not that. And that one will do this, but, but, but not that. And neither is perfect, but we're told it doesn't matter. It does not matter. Just remember the Supreme Court and the environment and healthcare and DACA and just, just, just vote for whoever's on the ballot. Just, just, just do it, just do it. They don't have to be perfect. <laughs> then in 2024, again, we'll say, oh my gosh, it's so past time for the first women president, come on. But not that one and not that one and oh my God, not that one. They're great. Yes, of course, they're smart, but they're just not right, you know, for, for this pivotal time in our history or, or this sensitive time in our history or this dire time in our history or this history time in our history. <laughs> I will never forget the images of the older black men and women weeping in Grant Park the night that Barack Obama won the election in 2008. And many said later that this wasn't a dream that anyone thought would ever come true in their lifetimes. 100 years after winning the right to vote, I am still holding my breath. I am waiting, I am wishing, I am praying for a woman to be elected president. But when will we know if it's the right time? I mean, hopefully whenever it is, somebody will put out a memo because I don't want to miss it. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren told little girls at her rallies, I'm running for president because that's what girls do. Pinky pledge. But only if you're the right girl. This soapbox was brought to you by Flip 'em the Bird. When you simply don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves and knit hats at flipemthebird.com. When there's no words, you can flip them the bird. The vice presidency doesn't count. So there is something they do at my school. It's called the Odyssey. It's a simulation where we are put into a scenario that possibly our parents and grandparents went through to get to refuge. Though you don't have to be a child of refugees to participate, anyone can join in. Anyway, I thought, okay, sure, this sounds interesting. At the start of it, it seemed just fine. You know, we had all gathered in the gym of this campsite up north, but everyone was wearing all black. And I came in with my cute little pink light jacket and my new white Nike shoes. As we mingled and talked, all of a sudden, a pair of ours came in with black face paint marks on his face and arms. And though this guy was known to be welcoming and open, his face was stern. And that caught my attention. Then another pair came in, agitated and asking for opium. He screamed when he couldn't get any and became sharp with his words. Then a mother wandered in with a blanket, and she was asking where her baby was. She had lost her baby. They were putting us through a simulation. We were lined up in lines of two, side by side. Then we began marching. The leader explained where the boundary lines were, which were marked by glow sticks hanging on the trees. If we saw them, then we knew we were heading outside the area and needed to turn back around. We were marched on a path through the woods, then past a campfire site. That was our refuge. As we walked, it visibly got darker outside. When we finally reached who knows where on the middle of this forest path, the leader told us once he blew the whistle, the simulation would begin. When the whistle blew again, it was over. We would meet at the fire. We were sent off two by two and started running. There were no clear paths to run on, no broken shrubbery for me to step on, no clearing ahead. But I had to run, hide, it's something. Then I heard the whistle, followed by yelling from the soldiers who were performed by our peers. They taunted and immediately captured some people. I just kept going. As I crawled through twigs and moist dirt and got cuts and who knows what blurring my vision and, and tearing my clothes, it got darker and colder. I found a place to hide and I laid there, still and quiet. 
I didn't know where I was, what I was laying on, how close I was to the fire, or how far. From the distance, I could hear yelling, and firecrackers set off to sound like gunshots. And I just held my breath, hoping those sounds stayed at a distance. It was cold. I stayed there for what felt like an eternity. I wanted to move, to see more around me, but I was scared someone would get me, so I didn't budge one bit. I wanted to stop the people crawling by and see if we could go together, but I was scared we would all get caught. I'd rather hide and survive than get captured. And you see, what I was going through was one one millionth of what my grandmother had to go through. And that made me realize that I am so privileged. When she fed Laos, she had my mother, a baby on her back, in-laws who also had babies looking to her for guidance while my grandpa had already fled. It hurt her, but she would keep my mother from crying by feeding her opium, making sure not to give her too much, otherwise she would kill her. She climbed vines to get over mountains, when you climbed, you pray you and your child wouldn't fall. If you guys fell, you die. That's what she told me. She was captured multiple times and put to work in internment camps where they were barely fed and worked hard labor. And many people died. Many children died. My mother almost died there. My grandmother did and gave what little she had to a shaman so my mother would be healed. After all, my mother was the only blood family my grandmother had during this war. She crossed the Mekong River where many Hmong people drowned or were shot to their deaths. And she made it to a camp in Thailand, Ban Vinai, with her in-laws and brought my mother here to America for safety. Why specifically America? The Secret War of Laos was from 1964 to 1973. It was led by the CIA, which at the time was unknown to American knowledge, and today, many Americans still don't know about it. During this time, the US dropped more than two million tons of ordnance in Laos. During 580,000 bombing missions, which is equivalent to bombs dropping every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. Now see, I took this factual information from legaciesofwar.com, but I know these facts from the stories of my family that survived running away, running from, and trying not to run on them. Americans recruited the Hmong people to help them navigate the land in Laos, hoping that together we could fight the communist Pathé Lao. We, the Hmong people, were seen as traitors for aiding the Americans, but we stood by them. Then, the Americans were told to abandon us. They left us to flee from a country that was angry with us for fighting against them. We were dying, dying because there wasn't enough food, dying because we were escaping for refuge, dying because communists were killing us. Eventually, when the Americans did come back to help, we were allowed to immigrate here. That's why America. Yet here we are in 2020. If you don't know, we are facing threats of being deported back to Laos. Yeah, you'd think the people who should be educated would be educated. Anyways, I laid there on the ground, cold and damp, for an hour and a half until I heard that second whistle blow. When I thought it was safe, I ran out and I saw my friends and we hugged and we were like, oh my God, we survived, we survived, we did it, let's go home, we're done. And then the leader came. He told us to be quiet. And he marched us back to the gym and we debriefed. It felt like the simulation would never end, and I just wanted it to end. But here I am again privileged, because it did end for me, but not my grandma. When I got home, I told her about the simulation, and she told me that the war was, had never really left her. I was shocked to find out that she still wakes up afraid that the soldiers would get her, afraid of the gunshots and bombs that were near her, afraid that she can't save everyone. With how things are going right now, I'm afraid she still isn't safe, that we aren't safe. Day Yang, you're listening to the roar of the female humans. And now please welcome my guest for the conversation, Amy Matthews. Amy, come on up. 
And then she gets to make a dramatic entrance because she's all the way in the back. Yes. Amy and I look like we're from different seasons. <laughs> Maybe just different islands. I know. Oh, different islands. Yeah. Oh, different islands. That's what it is. Nordic. Yeah, Nordic. Caribbean. Still, still feels like it's cold outside. <laughs> and uh, tropical, so cute, bare arms. So, Amy, you, you are a popular TV host of multiple home improvement shows who became a licensed contractor and remodeler. And you are the co-founder of this incredible nonprofit that supports survivors of domestic abuse. And now she rises. Yes. So lots to talk about here. But let's start at the beginning. Your dad used to swim in Moore Lake. He did. Yeah, you grew up around here. He was a friendly baby, like down yeah. the road. And for the podcast listeners, Moore Lake is just outside the Crooners Supper Club. Yep. Hey, let's all go swimming. No. <laughs> if you're dressed like her, you could. Okay. Um, so uh, you came from a very arts-oriented childhood. I did. So you were telling me that you were you started playing the violin at three. Yes, it was a gift that my parents gave me. I mean, at three and a half, I was had a violin in my hand. I studied the Suzuki method, and it wasn't a thing where they said, you know, oh, play as long as you want, and if you're not really into it, you can give it up. It was like, no, like go to. My mother would be like, I can't hear you. You know, I'd be downstairs, <laughs> and my dad's like workroom office, you know, playing, and it was just part of our life. And that was a gift that gave me, you know, before there was even a violin that could fit into my arm. It was a butter box wrapped with tape that what? had a ruler on no. it. So you learned how to stand and hold the instrument. So you had like a fake violin that I you used? a fake violin. Out of a but butter box? Yeah, well, who's going to give a three and a half year old like a real violin? I, I thought mean, they, I they, thought they were, had those know. baby violins. Well, they do. But you had, yeah. to, you had to first know how to stand. Oh. And they had to know that you weren't going to take your butter box and like beat it against, oh, right. you know. I don't want to do this the anymore. Legos. Yeah. I don't want to play the same notes. Right. So you thought for a while that maybe that was your thing. That I you did. were going to be sort of a violinist and go off and be in big orchestras or whatever. I was committed to it, but it was, it was part of my whole entire high school and upbringing. And although a lot of people do things in high school that they'll never think about, yeah. that was what I was considering. Yeah. That was my trajectory. At the same time in high school, you're also getting involved in acting and singing and getting, sort of getting bit by the, the theater opera bug. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. And then you were telling me that you attended Tanglewood Institute in Massachusetts, which is a gorgeous place if you've never been there, go. Yes. But you got you you entered um, uh, for both violin and voice. I did. It was a weird pivotal turning point in my life at like seventeen, which is weird to think back on because our lives have so many of pivotal. those pivotal points yeah. that are really make a difference later and not really at that point. And I was at um, McPhail and I was outside my teacher's office and I saw a postcard for an audition and I went in and I talked to him and. He goes, oh, yeah, you should audition for that. It's very, I don't know. You know, it was kind of like, well, we'll see if you get in kind of thing. Meaning just you go practice this, You do have this butter box, and I don't know if they actually will let you play the butter box <laughs> in Tanglewood, but you can try. Violin, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of going to have to take the real violin for that one. But I said I've been singing a lot, and I wanted to audition. I could either audition for the opera program or for violin. And it was like violin was a no-brainer because yeah. that's what I did. Yeah. And um, so I said, oh, this new vocal thing, I, I, I want to explore that. And so I auditioned, and I actually got in for both and had to make a decision which one to go wow. to. And I decided the vocal performance. And that summer was Leonard Bernstein was conducting us. And it was his last summer alive. He wow. passed away the October, like two months after I finished that program. So he, you know, we, I guess goosebumps. We were singing Candide and he was, you know, conducting the orchestra. And it was just one of those things that you can't, you know, no. you look back on that, and I, I knew it was amazing at the time, but I didn't know how, what that was yeah. at the moment. And but that's so, okay. But, then you, but now you have that memory to go, oh, my God, it was, he was there. He was there. Yeah. 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 No, that's just so cool. And then you went on to Boston University. I did. Yeah. And to AMDA. And tell us what AMD is. So AMDA is the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. So I spent two years at, at Boston, which was like a direct line from Tanglewood because BU runs that student yes, program. Yes, right. And when I was in Boston... And we'll segue back to the actual reason I left. Part of it was because um, in the opera program, I, I, had a, I had a big voice. I had a mature voice, which is very hard to handle when you're a young singer. So all my friends that were these you know, ingenue, young oh. soprano singers were getting all these roles and doing these things. And um, my teacher was like, oh, you know, a bigger voice takes time to mature. You know, when you're 40. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God. 
they're like, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll hit, you know, when you're 40. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be dead. Yeah. I'm going to die of something long. before, no. you know, uh -huh. I was 20 when they're yeah. telling me this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I loved the medium of theater, um, outside of just the music. Yeah. I love the medium of television and film. I love the storytelling of all of it. I loved radio. And so I wanted to, to, to move forward from just that musical world and into a world which AMDA provided in New York City, yeah. where we were studying these all different mediums of storytelling. And that's what performance is to yeah. me. And so that's, that's where I went. That's yeah. I so the, OK, so then from there, uh, you became sort of a living actor in New York City, and you were traveling the world performing on high-end cruise ships. I was. Yes. We won't talk anymore about cruise ships right now. I might not anyway. recommend it now, but at the time it was a fantastic way to see the world. Oh, no, of course it still is fantastic to see the world. We might just have to wait for a little bit. Anyway, no. um, <laughs> then, you, uh, then you come home uh, after 9-11. And you're you're sort of rediscovering the town and like wow it's gotten really big and really cool and there's like all these cool people yeah and you're involved in like the theater and doing commercial work and you get an audition mm -hmm. for a brand new home improvement show yeah. called Bathroom Renovations another pivot point where it yes. was like oh what the but tell us about that because you were just telling me that it was just it just an audition it was just like whatever. Well, I always have the mentality in the acting world that you show up. I had an acting teacher that told me once, your job is not to perform, your job is to audition. Just yeah. show up, yeah. bring your A-game, just always be there, which I think is a great lesson in life no matter what job. You're not going to get every job, but you are going to get the job that's right for you. Right. right? And you were, you were telling me that they, they called in for this, for this. They weren't sure what they were looking for, so they called in contractors and, I don't know, electricians and, and actors and every... It was like anyone from 25 to 55, any race, male, female, yeah. like any skill set. I mean, it was just across the board, they were like... Who wants to do a home improvement show? Like, <laughs> who can walk and talk and like hammer at the same time? I don't really know exactly what they were looking for, but I got I went through the first audition process and then I got a callback. But funny thing in Minnesota is when callbacks happen on like the worst snowstorm in the world, yeah. you're like, I didn't want that job. I don't need to go to that callback. Yeah. I wasn't gonna get it anyway. But I went, I had a friend that said, You're gonna book it. If you book it, I'll buy you a steak dinner. I was like, on, on. <laughs> So I went and I ended up, I, I wish I still had the tape of that first audition because yes, I think it's pretty, really scary. But, you know, I was like cutting copper pipe and things were like flying. You know, like you do, like you do. Well, it was, and just yeah. so you know, at auditions, we don't normally cut copper pipe. So just so you know. <laughs> Go on. Yes. Well, I cut the pipe and I got the job. And you got the job and yes. you got the job. She got the job. I got the yes, job. Yes, yes. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is you were telling me that when you were, uh, when you were 14, mm -hmm. your church... Yeah. had sort of a work program. Mm -hmm. uh, a, it was like summer, a summer thing. It was. Yes, and you traveled around the country building homes or repairing homes or helping people in, in underserved neighborhoods. So you, you, had, you had a taste of that already yes, at 14. Tell I us did. about that a little bit. Yes, we went out on what was called work camps, which now I hear that name and I'm like, why didn't my parents even let me go? Yeah, that right. sounds just terrible. Yeah, it does kind of. Send your, they really wanted to get rid of me for two weeks in the summer, yeah. apparently. But we would travel <laughs> and we would repair homes for families in need. And we didn't know anything, but we were put on these crews of like, you know, six or seven people from all over the country. Mm -hmm. So we weren't with the people that we knew and there was always a, a project manager oh, and someone okay. who could teach us home improvement and we would be set in these scenarios that were really pretty cr crazy and fun not like dangerous but you know they were like here's the tool there's the thing and you're like did anybody understand what yeah. they were saying? Hit the thing with the thing, and yeah. then it becomes a thing. And you, you yeah. figure it out. But the reward, number one, I think, realizing privilege. Like, I didn't grow up with a family that had a, a lot of money. I mean, my parents were very hard workers, but it, it wasn't like we had a, a, fa a fancy life. I remember my mom saying, hey, this violin lesson is $35. Right. You better practice. With like, a butter box. So with, come practice on. Practice your butter box, because yeah. that butter box also costs $2. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I think that seeing... Um, how people lived was an eye-opener yeah. for a 14-year-old where we hear about things and think about things, but to be a young person in those scenarios and real, really realizing that it wasn't about making things pretty, it was about functionality and safety in a home, and, and that was the first thing I, I learned. So that was incredibly valuable, and so I, I had some skills from that. No, I know, but, 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 but it's interesting. So then, so then you, you do that show, you do bathroom renovations, and then you go on and you do all these other shows. You just you become the sort of DIY queen. You're, you do sweat equity and this new house and renovation raiders. And in the meantime, you get your contractor's license yep. so that you're saying, I'm legit. 
I'm not just a pretty face up here. I can really remodel your house, sucker. <laughs> and um, am I putting words in your mouth at all? No, I mean, I didn't, maybe the I should have part, said that. Maybe not the sucker part. But anything, everything else? You're much more confident than I was. I was like, hi, I'm here to renovate your... It was really interesting to see how people responded to a woman in a man's industry. It yeah. is still a man's industry. I go yeah. to get my contractor education uh, renewal credits, which I'm really behind on, which this is reminding me I have to do that tonight. But it was the only place in the world as a woman that I would go sit in, in the continuing ed class for the day, and then when we'd all break to go to the bathroom, I was like, see ya, suckers. <laughs> no line in the women's bathroom. And there was like 20 guys trailing yeah, out. Like, and the guys didn't yeah, get it. They were just like, what? And I just thought it was a fun. So as a woman in, the, in a men's industry, there's a lot of things to deal with, that being a small part of sure. it. But a lot of very unique things where I think what I have taken and still take from it is that you can't, when you try and be an expert in all things, you're, you're incredibly hard on yourself. But when you keep a beginner's mind in everything that you do mm -hmm. and don't worry about trying to prove yourself and I know this or I know that, constantly being learning. I mean, you, you put 10 contractors in a room, you have 10 different ideas. So finally I decided, oh, I'm going to have one of those ideas. I'm not going to worry about what anyone else is doing. Yeah. And you know what? My idea usually worked really well. Of course so it once did. you own your yeah. own understanding of it, yeah. it, it became really powerful. Okay, so then... Uh, you're, you're at the top of your game, you're doing all these TV shows, and in 2008, during an episode of Sweat Equity, you meet your future husband. <laughs> this, we can just insert a novel of red flags, okay. and that's the whole conversation, just okay. red flags. This is the red flag <laughs> section. Um, but now, Sweat Equity, the homeowners do a lot of the work. So yes. it's not like they go away for dinner and they come back and their home has changed. No, it's not like a dramatic yeah. renovation. I mean, right. I'm coming in to essentially help people figure out where their budget is best served, what's their best return on investment, how to do certain aspects of their project, lead them through, but they're going to do their thing and we're going to come and tape it for, you know, for a show, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Yes. And I did and this it wasn't until a a, a, long, a year plus after finishing that show did the person contact me and say, hey, do you want to go out for a drink? Yeah. And I was like, I, I don't know, I the guess The guy so. from the house that we did with yeah. you and your wife? Yeah, that guy. That guy. Right, and that I was guy. like, oh, aren't you? Oh, and I actually thought, I think I told you this, I actually thought I was getting together with he and his wife. Yeah. But then I would show up, red flag at the bar, and he's by himself. And I was like... I'm huh. not that naive, but it was just one of those weird, like, well, it's awkward, because it was a professional relationship. Right. You know, so right, it's just course. awkward. Right. And there were so many red flags at that moment, and then I didn't call him for a year afterward. That was smart. Yeah. <sighs> and then? 2010. I don't know. Called again. Do you want to go out? Well, okay, well, maybe things are different. Yeah. Things change. People change. No, they don't. Okay. They don't. Uh, <laughs> they don't. So, red flags aside, and of course some of those red flags are hindsight. There's some of those that are hindsight, and there's some of them, are, I mean, are there some of them that are, are redder now than they were at the time? Yes, like yeah. fuchsia-y kind yeah. of, flaming. They are and like a waving, ball of fire like in a canyon. they're like waving like this. Coming like at you. Yeah. Yes. And before they, were, before they were just little, like, little toothpicks and little <laughs> flags on the toothpicks. Well, it's an, it's an amazing exercise just in as psychology. An analogy. Yes, it's yeah. amazing how, as humans, we assess a situation and we choose what information to release yeah. based on what our desires are, yeah. right? We choose to, I'm okay with that, or oh, they can't be so bad because if A is true, then B must be okay. Yeah. We are constantly having a conversation with ourselves about everything all day long and everyone we communicate with. How do, it's, it's fascinating when you think about it from that perspective. Yeah. And I laugh at these red flags. It's not a funny scenario. No. I can laugh at myself now. And right. that is part of healing is, sure. is laughter. Yes. So you know, yes. we can laugh at that. I agree. I yeah. totally agree. But as you're sort of dismissing the red flags or deciding not to, you know, you, be, you guys become a power couple. Mm -hmm. Good looking, charming, successful, and you're traveling all over the world and you're doing your thing and he's doing his thing. And you're meeting him in Africa and you're meeting him in Paris and you're doing all this kind of thing. Right. And um, there's behaviors. Mm -hmm. He drinks. Mm -hmm. But then there were, there were lovely times and there were romantic times, right? Right. You were telling me, can you share the, the uh, Paris? The Paris and the pills. Oh, the pills. Well, this is funny, because everything has like a two-story to it. It has what I know now, 
when I can look at abuse behavior and go, control, coercion, manipulation, this. And at the time it was like, he wants me to have his baby and he's never wanted a baby before and I think it'd be so fun to have a baby. I didn't, I didn't ever really talk like that. But you know, it was like, <laughs> you just thought it. That's your inside voice. Yes, it was like, well maybe I do want it. This would be amazing and we're doing this thing and we're this power couple and yes, let's do this and I'm not getting any younger and throw caution to the wind and throw my birth controls into the sen because that's a good idea. Yes. How so, romantic is that? It's, yeah. It took pictures of like the, yeah. So I got pregnant in Paris. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? When you look at life and the thing, the choices we make, I wouldn't trade that for the world because I have my son and he's my life. Yeah. I yeah, wouldn't yeah, yeah. trade it for the world. Yeah. So there is not an ounce of regret in that. Yeah. But there is the reminder that now maybe an opportunity to have other people see those red flags coming yes. down the bike, True, right? of course. Or, to, or just to be able to share that perspective. So, um, all right, so your son is born and the abusive behavior from your husband is getting worse. Yes. And, but there's still good days and there's still nice moments you were telling me about. Mm -hmm. um, and you were telling me how you, you, you still sort of were hanging on to this, as we do, this hope that things will change or things will get better or I can help change the situation or I can help him get better or, but it's a myth. It is a myth. And let me just delve right into an icky part delve, that, delve. I, that I think will help people understand because I can talk around it and it's, it's hard. I, I've only really started talking about things more, more recently. And I remember the first time I shared anything, I realized I talk for a living. I get paid to do talks and share and teach and do it on television. And I started talking about my own experience and I didn't recognize myself, you yeah. know, so, so there's some nerves in there. So to give you an example, in, in my life, I'd never dealt with depression or anxiety. I'd never taken medications for any of those things. Um, I got to a point, um, it was, um, you know, my son was a little over a year old, and I was going into my doctor and saying, I'm, I'm not doing well, I'm having such anxiety, but I couldn't tell them what was happening at home. I couldn't tell them um, the type of things. There's, there's all different types of, uh, of abuse, and nowadays, as we talk more about it, there, we understand that there is physical, there is verbal, there is emotional, there is psychological, um, and it, it, the, within psychology, they talk about how bad verbal and psychological abuse is compared to physical abuse. It has the same response on your nervous system, oh, yeah. okay? Yeah. So whether you're getting a black eye or whether someone is telling you that you are truly worthless and manipulating something about your integrity, uh, it's gonna affect you the same way. Um, and PTSD is very real for people who've experienced both. So for me, I got to a low point. My son was a year old. I went in my doctor and I said, this is, this is, I didn't say what was going on in the home because yeah. I was absolutely embarrassed. And of course, the rule was you don't talk about anything that we're dealing with. You don't say anything. You don't tell anyone anything, right? Yeah. It was complete like isolation. I mean, I was losing my girlfriends, people that want to be around him because they know his attitude. I mean, it was just, everybody kind of knew, but I kept hoping. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I had hit such a low point that I had a suicide uh, hotline phone number and a domestic abuse hotline number in my nightstand. Mm. And I'd called both of them. And I, I just was lost. Yeah. I was completely lost. And there was a night that I decided that he was right, that I, that I, I probably shouldn't be here anymore, that, I, that the world was better off without me. And I remember him screaming at me and saying, you're not the woman that you could be. And just these things ringing through my head and I thought, okay, well, I'm just gonna take the pills because I'd researched which pills wouldn't actually kill me but which pills I could take in order for, if someone got to me in time, Whoa. that I would be okay. Whoa, whoa. Later I find out yeah. that he'd known that. He'd known I was researching this stuff. He'd known that I was taking wow. those steps. And if you love your partner and they're hurting, you think you, you would think. say, hey, babe, what's, what's going on with you? Let's, yeah. get, let's get some help. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Wow. He was ready. He would. He would have preferred to be the victim of me doing that, and then he'd have the narrative of, "Oh, my wife killed herself." I mean. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, you you do take those pills, and you end up in the ER. Mm -hmm. at, because you're trying to escape. It was an absolute cry for help. Yeah. I mean, I remember getting in the ambulance that night and thinking and looking back on the house, which was all this warm, beautiful light, and him then, after screaming at me, then changing all of his behaviors mm -hmm. through the, you're crazy, you didn't really take those pills, and I just kinda, it was a weird, it wasn't even a fighting back night, it was just like a, you should probably call 911. 
no, I'm calling your sisters, you're crazy. Da, da, da. No. no, you should probably, and then I started to panic. Like, you should probably just call 911. And I remember when the ambulance got there, going into the ambulance and sitting there before thing, you know, the drugs had really hit me yet, and looking back and seeing like the beautiful light of the home and him sitting on the stairs and crying, and me going, oh, this ambulance is so quiet. Wow. No one is yelling at me. This wow. is so peaceful. And then going, oh my God, like Wait somebody minute. help me. Yeah. It was it was surreal to yeah. have to to go, what the hell happened yeah. to my life? I'm supposed to be in control. I've got everything going on. Everything's great. Outside appearance is totally fine. Right. And there was a bottom of the barrel yeah. moment. That rock bottom. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you get through that. Yeah. Clearly. And um, eventually you get into therapy. Yeah. And it was fascinating when you said to me, um, the first time you, you tried some different therapists and finally one just kind of felt right. Mm -hmm. And you said the first time that you started actually telling the stories, because even when you had been with other therapists, you were not telling these stories. Mm -mm. So now you're starting to tell these real stories. And you said you heard your own words coming out of your mouth and it shocked you. It's I like, did. wow, I, oh, okay, this is really. Then the focus started to shift to self-care. Mm -hmm. You're still married, the abuse is still happening, but tell us about the new awareness then you, that you have at that point. I think it was, was me starting to seek truth. So it wasn't even that I was empowering myself with a self-care, it was like, wait a second, two and two don't go together. What someone's saying is not the reality of what I'm living in. It was, it was living in cognitive dissonance, okay. which is a horrible experience and causes such trauma and confusion because what is real is not what you're being told is, is real. Yeah. And so when I started to seek truth and I started to put two and two together, I'm like, I know, I know better. Oh, this makes sense. It's not the answers. I found no answers I wanted to know. I found everything that killed me again, you know, and was heartbreaking, but it was power. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's power and truth. Yeah. And so having her telling me, you know, hearing myself say things back to her and going, wow, this is, this is worse than I thought it was. This is not, this is not gonna end well. Yeah. There's not an option for this to end well except for me to end it, yeah. you know? And then, and then having the, uh, my eyes opened and having her say, what do you need to help you to get out of this? Yeah, and, and you were saying that one, one step was you finally shared this with your family. Mm -hmm. they, they'd heard some of the verbal, like some of my family had stayed in the house yeah. and had experienced some rages and some things yeah. and they'd heard it, but it was like, an, weird, and my family talks about everything. I'm best friends with my sisters and we're close and so, they, but they knew about the drinking. The drinking, yeah. And so at that point, it was like, oh, if I can get the drinking out, yeah. I think I can fix everything, yeah. right? Because right. I don't know, as women, we're kind of fixers. Yeah. And you think about your child, you think about your family, you think about, like, I was going on the opportunity and the, the, the love and hope that I had for what it could be yeah. as opposed to sitting in the reality of what it was. Right. So as I shared with people, oh, I think there's a drinking problem. And they were like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought, why... Say it if you see it with yeah. family and people around you. I mean, really, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say it. And if someone doesn't want to hear it, they're not ready to hear it. But it's okay to say it because that person might be like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said something. I really wanted to talk to someone. Yeah. Right? So an intervention happens yeah. with him. And he agrees to get on a plane and go to treatment. Yes. And he gets on the plane and then he gets off. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I drove him to the airport. Mm -hmm. I found him the place. It had been everything that I ever thought he would want in a treatment facility. Gorgeous. I mean, like, the perfect enabler. Uh, yeah. You know? And everything that it's going to be great and whatever, and I'll get on the plane with you. And I spent the car ride to the airport being just berated and just told how I'd effed everything up and how horrible I was and how could I do that and embarrass him in front of and his family. I mean, it wasn't me doing, I wasn't yeah. even throwing the intervention. It was family and other people all coming together knowing that this was a problem. And so I was berated all the way to the airport, got to the airport, and then the apology. I'm sorry, I can do this, and I love you, and I don't want to be a part, and I don't want to lose you, and I can do this, and all these things happening from, like, even the airplane. And then all of a sudden, texts kept coming in when I knew the airplane was supposed to have <laughs> left. And I was like, God damn it. 
Yeah. You just, you didn't get on the plane. No, and then a text came in and was like, I didn't get on the plane. I can do this without it. And I was like, yeah, no. Hi. I'm, I'm looking for a lawyer. Yeah, right, exactly. And that, it just and that, that was, was it. the straw that broke that was it. Back. Yeah. So then you were done. I was done. You were done. Yeah. And so it's time to separate. You ultimately, you won a very hard-fought battle, a uh, very messy hard-fought battle, and gained successful sole custody of your son. I did. But it, let's just say it, it took a person digging their own hole. And the justice system is not proactive for children. They are reactive. Yeah. And I have been immersed in it for years mm -hmm. and researched and worked. And thank God I had a job where I, sometimes I spent seven hours a day on my divorce. Because I wasn't working on the divorce of how are we going to split up our retirement. I was working on how do I protect a minor child. So it, it, it took actually that person kind of eventually digging their own hole. And then the court going, oh, wait a second. And yeah. I was like... Like I said, through, yeah. through the last three years. Why did it take this long? Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So then you inadvertently meet your ex-husband's now new fiance. Yeah. There were a lot of them in there. Let me just tell you. Because. This one was special, though. Because, I like her. Because, yeah, because of a phone call. Tell us about that phone call. Uh, let's see. So it was maybe eight months into my serving papers in the divorce process. And I knew, you know, there are multiple women who had already come out of the woodwork reaching out to me in regards to things that had happened during my marriage that I didn't know about. So these women were now becoming friends of mine. And another friend said, you've kind of become like the president of the um, <laughs> club that you don't want to be president of. And yeah. I was like, why am I helping these people? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but because, because there was, the, the people would call me and they would go, I think he's cheating on me and I think something's going on. And then the woman would go, I just told his wife that I think he's cheating on me. And I was like, it's totally fine. I'm fine with it. Yeah. I mean, it was just this yeah. weird, it went to like Dallas television show, like in a heartbeat. Yeah. It, 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 once I got out of the bad, bad, and then started seeing hints of what other people were going through, it, it was a drama that I can't even describe. But about eight months after, and I get a phone call of a number I didn't recognize, and I, I pick it up, and the woman on the other line says so-and-so is a pathological liar, and I'm, like, scared. She didn't say the word I'm scared, but she shared things that were going on yes, very right. briefly and, and then hung up the phone. And then I looked to the friend that I was sitting with, and they said, who was that? And I said, um, I think that was Nina, his new fiancé. And they were like, what? Yeah. And I said, I'm going to call her back. Yeah. I called her back. And we talked for an hour and a half about what she was going through. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I mean, it's on, th th there's some crazy drama ensuing in all of it. Underneath everything, this is a very dangerous situation. Yes, yes. I know this. I've, I'm now separate, and I yeah. have, you know. Um, but I know that whatever someone's going through, it's actually getting worse. Because number one, just alcoholism is progressive. It's a progressive disease. Right. It does not get better. And when there's violence and rages and whatever other dual addictions or other issues that are going on along with those things, those are going to become exacerbated and get worse. Mm -hmm. So whatever I was dealing with, all these other people are dealing with something much worse. Yeah, good point. And good it's not going to get, it's getting worse faster. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. So you and Nina form a bond. We did. And, uh, but not too bondy. More like, call me if you need me. Oh, yeah. Call yeah. Me, yeah. Yeah, just say, call me if you need me. Yeah. Right? Am I right? She's here tonight. Yeah, yeah. she's here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, but eventually, uh, you do become closer friends. And then there's the brunch. Oh, there's the, the brunch. Sunday brunch <laughs> that led to the nonprofit that you, the two of you co-founded called And Now She Rises. Tell yes. us about the brunch. Ah, uh, that makes me smile, coming out of all of that heaviness to think that our stories come together and become something really powerful for someone else, right? Yeah. I mean, we yeah. never know how what we're doing can touch other people. So we had a brunch, which is so great to have a drink in the day with a girlfriend. Day like, drinking. Come on. Whoa. Right? I think we're at Martina's in, in Linden Hills. And we have this great conversation talking about life and things, and we're both like super type A crazy, like, I mean, obviously, look at me. But I'm just, <laughs> we're, we're just like, what's next? What's next? And talking about our lives. And as we're leaving, now, she was already really an, an, an advocate for, for women's issues. I knew I wanted to start a nonprofit, but we had never, like, we'd never connected dots yeah. there, right? And so she says to me outside of the car, um, hey, I'm gonna be volunteering with Tubman. 
and they have a thing called Harriet's Closet, which is where women who are staying at the shelter can go and they can pick out clothes twice a month in this closet. And they can use those clothes for job interviews or for court appearances. And of course, women that are usually staying at the shelter, they've often left their house with nothing except their purse. I mean, not, yeah. they don't have right. any of their things, right? And they're so, afraid to go back yeah. to get stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right, 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 right. So, so she goes, I'm going to be volunteering here. You want to do this thing with the closet? I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so great. Okay, bye. Have a good day. Hop in the car. And as soon as I get in the car, I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And like her wheels were to our wheels were turning and they yeah. were turning separately at the same time. So I get in the car and I'm like, and I, I called her and I was like, okay, wait, we're showing up for everybody else. Like in our jobs, we both have worked for different companies. We show up for other people. We bring our A game. We give them 110%. What if we didn't show up for that? What if we did something for that that was ours? What if we own that? What if we created we a created nonprofit? It. And that's what it was. So let's throw a fashion swap where we get closed donations that are all business garment items, the best of the best, women of, you know, just that will go directly to Harriet's Closet. And that we, that they are the beneficiary. Tubman is the beneficiary of it. Right. And we do this. And we were like, oh my God. In eight days, we created a nonprofit, applied for our 501c3. Found a, ven found a venue in four 24 hours. Needed is a creative director, so she created, like within 48 hours, she sends me what a creative director is going to send a pitch. If you own a company, she's going to send you, this is the new name of your company. This is what it looks like on these graphics. This is what the commercial is going to look like. This is your mission statement. I mean, she just like, it just <laughs> whipped it out. So all of a sudden we're like, wow, we can do it. We have like a thing. We're like, we weren't meant to be with him. I think we were meant to be together and like, you know, in a business, <laughs> right? It was so beautifully just organic and just happened. And I think both of us, the flip side, the last thing is that when you come out of an, an abusive situation, no matter what it's like, you have an energy that you've used to fight yes. that thing. I'm sure, yes. And when you try and move that energy somewhere else, you have like this light coming out of you, this, this amount of love and energy and positivity and need for change that you need to put towards something that is effective, that makes change, whether it's for yourself or for others. Yeah. So we both had this and still have this energy that is so focused on that that we realize, wow, you just redirect your energy in life and it's unbelievable how powerful it is. Wow, and they started this nonprofit and now she rises. Tell me a little bit about uh, well, the mission, but you know what your focus is for the nonprofit. You know, when, at first we we weren't even sure what it was going to be. We knew we didn't want to be a crisis center or a shelter. There were great organizations in town doing that work. We wanted to support that. And what we found is that we could have a conversation about a really tough subject in an atmosphere that was incredibly fun and engaging, in a way to bring people together. You wanna to go out for drinks with your girlfriends? You wanna go out for an evening, but also do something for good? Yeah. We can create an event around that, that then all of the benefit of that, like last night, you guys, we had a bra drive yeah. at Modest Brewery, where last we've night. partnered with Modest Brewery now two years in a row for International Women's Day. They create a special International Women's Day brew um, part of their proceeds they give back to and now she rises, which is amazing. So go have a beer at Modest if you drink it. Um, and then we did this bra drive last night because bras, they have to be new, they're expensive. There's something that the shelters, which don't have funding right now. So what we try and do is figure out what is the greatest need for each of these organizations and provide that to them. You know, have an event where we can bring people together and be like, bring a bra. You know, bring, you know, cover is free yeah. for the concert that we're throwing. And it's amazing how the community has come together around our well, events like that. So quickly. So I'm so impressed. Uh, they have this fabulous website, and now she rises.org. Yes. There is a poem on the homepage of your website mm -hmm. that I found to be incredibly stunning. Um, and now, with Amy's permission, our Zippy Lasky has set it to music. I said I was leaving, so he left me for dead, and now I rise.
got the type of bruises no one can see. And now I rise. I lost my job and my sobriety, and now I rise. You try to stifle in your chokehold She's the rubble that you carelessly use to cover your trouble She is the one you left for dead Thinking she'd never rise again And now she rises I endured endless attacks on my integrity And now I rise I lied to everyone about my perfect family, and now I rise. Aprendí que su enfermedad no es excusa, y ahora me levanto. I learned his illness is not an excuse, and now I rise. Stifle in your chokehold She's the rubble that you carelessly use to cover your trouble She is the one you left for dead Thinking she'd never rise again And now she rises I broke out of the trauma bonds he had created And now I rise I stopped making excuses for him. And now she rises. And now I rise. I stopped believing it was my fault. And now I rise. I saw truth relentlessly. And now she rises. I rediscovered who I was. I exhaled. And now she rises. She rises. Thank you, Amy Matthews. Thank you so much for your bravery and your courage. And thank you for celebrating International Women's Day with us. Sylvia Potaza, Day Yang. Nancy Bagshaw Reasoner, Debbie Lasky. Tonight's episode was written by Sylvia Day, Sue, Nancy, and Zippy. Thanks to our lovely engineer and male ally, Zachary Thayer. And thanks to our assistant, Hannah McDonald. Thank you to the wonderful staff here at Crooner Supper Club. We will be back next month with another live island of discarded women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you. Good night.